Doug Ellen, creator and head writer of HBO's hit series Entourage, known for its dead-on portrayal of the show business lifestyle. People thought it was so real that they thought that it was mimicking exactly what was happening in Hollywood. And featuring cameos from the biggest names in Hollywood and sports. Tom Brady. Tom was like a no entourage, call me direct, I'll be wherever you need me. While he had early success, Ellen's career hit a major dry spell, putting him on the brink of calling it quits. You're paid, I think, a million dollars to write a script, Yet all of a sudden, you can't even get $50,000 from somebody. This moment was like, okay, you're dead. But the overwhelming success of Entourage would change everything. A self-professed sports fanatic. How big of a sports fan? My greatest childhood memories are all sports related. He recalls some of the most memorable athletes who've appeared on the show, as well as the one who canceled last minute. You know, it'd be one thing if he read the script and said, I hate it, this is awful, but I never got, I never got anything, so. All that's coming up next, right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. So you uh, majored in English, yeah. um, it, you know, in college, uh, and when you graduated Tulane in the early 1990s, you moved to Hollywood, and then you get into stand-up comedy yeah why i mean i actually got into it right at the end of college you know i'm a, I'm a critical guy uh, you know and uh, i think we were at a stand-up show and i told one of my friends um how, how bad i thought the comic was that was on stage and he signed me up for an amateur night so i did it and again it was you know i don't know what i did to pursue this stuff as a kid but i always wanted to be woody allen or albert brooks that was my goal jerry seinfeld um, I didn't really do anything to pursue it till I, the day I landed here, but that was kind of always the thought. I wanted to make movies, I wanted to star in movies, I wanted to write them, I wanted to direct them, and um, you know, I didn't do any of that as a kid, so I don't have like a Spielberg story that I made this great film when I was 14 or anything like that, but it's just always what I wanted to do. It was always what I was interested in doing. How much of your routine do you remember? I mean, I'm not going to do any jokes if that's what you ask, but I remember all of it. And um, I, I got Andrew Dice Clay's number, who's now my friend, and I used to call him and leave jokes in his voice on his machine and say, if you like him, call me. Did I, he know who no, you were? No, no, no. Did he ever call back? No, he never called back. Well, I, I, don't, I asked him, you know, and he said, I think I do remember that, but I, you know, go, oh, you know, and I would do, like, the whole thing, so. Like, what, what would you leave for him on the... I mean, just, you know, if you know Andrew Dice Clay, you know, I would just do his kind of humor, which was, you know, I banged this girl last night. She said, you know, what did that, what did that mean to you? You know, it means I don't have to jerk off tonight, honey. Oh, you know, and I would do stuff like that. So I would leave it on his machine and he never called me back. He probably used it anyway. But um, so, uh, but stand up went, you know, went pretty well for me in the, in the lazy form that I was. I was not like a... I was not a guy who could sit around five nights a week like the great comedians will all tell you they did or seven nights a week until they'd get on. I was like a once every two week kind of comedian. I didn't like living in bars. It was just wasn't my thing. But I had a, I, I was pretty good. Things, things were, I, I didn't really have a bad night except one night in New York. You know, it was the only, only real bad night I what had. What happened? Well, you know, things were going kind of well, you know, and I, um, I felt confident, and um, so I went to New York, and I, I rented out a place. I said, I'll fill it, you know, and I'm, I'm somewhat popular in Long Island, and I managed to, to fill up Caroline's with uh, 350, 400 people to come see me, all my friends from childhood, my parents, some relatives and everything, and I felt very confident. I was still an amateur at this point, so all the professional comedians that they still bring in 
the whole night. Like, I think my name, I don't remember, but I think my name was like on the marquee. I think I took it out or whatever. You know? yeah. And all these professional comedians were like, who the hell is Doug Ellen? And they were just abusing me for the entire night until I finally came up. And I came up, and, and again, I'm not going to do any jokes, but... Were, were you, you confident when you came up? I was Because I was even confident, with them yeah. all I mean, you using know, you I, the whole I, I'm not, I wasn't like an impressionist comedian. I had, okay. you know, thoughtful, smart, intelligent comedy. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I never really had a horrific night, you know, mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, you never start off with a new joke. I don't know if that's a rule of comedians, but I'm telling you, don't start off with a new joke. Even if you're 100% convinced it's funny. So anyway, I started off with some new joke, and there were crickets. And I just went into a full-scale panic attack, and I just said, thank you all for coming, good night. And I walked off the stage. Are you serious? And, yeah, yeah. And, um, and my father's best friend called me the next day and told me, he's like, you're killing your parents. I mean, you understand? And I'm like, things were going pretty well in L.A. I had just made a short film that I sold to Showtime, and I uh, got my first agent. And I really wasn't planning on pursuing stand-up as a career. Um, but, uh, yeah, they were, they, that was a, a complete disaster for all of my friends. I think everyone who was there that night would tell you they thought, like, I would be back in New York, you know, um, working at my dad's accounting agency in a couple of months after that. How did you handle it when you walked off the stage? I mean, not well. I, I drank a lot and went home and went to sleep and tried to forget about it. But, I mean, it was, it was one of the, you know, the pivotal moments of my life of, like, wow, that was really bad, you know? For months, I was dealing with people calling me going, what are you doing with your life? What's wrong with you? You have no talent. You have no ability whatsoever. Why are you doing this? So, you know, it was one of those kind of, okay, I'm going to show everybody. So you're in L.A., you're working in the mailroom for New Line yeah. and apparently just miserable, so you end up quitting. You know, New Line was actually, you know, a very good place for me because I did, I, I talked my way into being the, the head mailroom guy, actually. But when I was there, I did a, a stand-up uh, show to raise money. And Mike DeLuca, who was the, the vice president of New Line at the time, who's now, uh, you know, president of Sony or a big producer or whatever, you know, um, he gave me money out of his own pocket to do this short film that I did. So it was good there. That when I quit was kind of after a late night, very late night poker game. And uh, what happened was this woman, who I remember her name, I won't, maybe I can't say it, but she was like some type of executive there. She came out, I was pushing my mailroom cart, and she came out, smashed into me and knocked coffee on me and said, what the hell are you doing or something like that? And I said, fuck you. And everybody was like, whoa. And... The person who hired me to be the head mailer, she really liked me. She called me and she said, obviously, you have to leave and whatever, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I was in that elevator just going, I am totally screwed. You know, my parents were giving me, I, I don't know, they were giving me like $500 a month to help me. But it was mm -hmm. like, it was time, the, the clock was ticking. Right. And uh, I had this, I went out then and made this short film. And, and I got the people who still liked me from New Line to come. And, and Mike gave me it and I did that film. And uh, I used that to get into AFI. Um, which is the American Film Institute. So you end up going on to have a decent amount of success. As mentioned, you have uh, you know, two films released in the theaters before uh, you're 30 years old. You're paid, I think, a million dollars to write a script, yet all of a sudden you can't even get $50,000 from somebody to write a script. Explain what happened. Well, I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's a funny business. You know, I mean, I, I got hired after I got out of AFI. I made another short film, and a guy called me up and, and asked me uh, to do this movie called Fat Beach. And I was 22 years old, and it was uh, 
P-H-A-T, which was really, honestly, if you look at the timing of it, it was not really a word in the language at that point. It was coming, you know, uh, from the inner city out to white suburbia, but it really wasn't there. And we shot this movie in about eight days for about fifty, a hundred thousand dollars, and the guy ran out of money who was producing it. And about eight months later, a friend of mine saw some of the footage and said, "I can sell this." And he went out and sold it. And they called me back. They said, "We're going to shoot another six days. We're going to finish this movie and release it." I never really thought anyone was going to like. Where would they release it? You know. But uh, this movie's been playing for 15 years now. It's still on Showtime. And Chris Rock used to make fun of it in his stand-up act. But I did it in about 12 days with about a budget of $100,000. And uh, live entertainment released it on 400 screens, which I thought was insane. And um, that'd be a great feeling. I didn't even want it released. Oh, I didn't yeah, want okay. anyone. I didn't want anyone to see it. I mean, they called me. You know and told me they were going to release it. I thought it was an April Fool's joke at first. <laughs> and then they called me and told me we're doing a giant premiere. So that got me an agent. And um, a year, two years later, I got another opportunity to do an independent film, which was uh, called Kissing a Fool. And again, we did that for a million six and sold it to Universal. So it was, again, an independent movie that we completely did on our own and handed it over and they released it. And they released it on 2,200 screens. Like it was this enormous movie and it wasn't. And when it didn't make money, I could not get a job. I mean, but before that movie came out, everyone who saw it was like, okay, we want to hire Doug for this. So I was getting these jobs and this and that. And then the movie comes out and makes no money. And I am dead, you know? And I'm literally thinking about taking the LSATs again. I've got an LSAT book and I'm thinking maybe I'll go back to law school. And, you know, I had already bought myself a house at this point and I had already, you know, already made money in this business. But that's how. Were you really going to go back to law school? So, I, mean, I didn't know down, what, could you really I didn't know what I was doing that. I mean, I didn't know what I was going to do. I mean, I had no idea what I was going to do. You know, you have to make money, obviously. And, uh, you know, I had made a, a pretty good amount of money for the first, whatever it was, eight, ten years of my career. But this this moment was like, OK, you're dead. I mean, there was no business. There was no jobs. You know what? What I I did was I had Bonnie Hunt in my show uh, in my movie and I called her. She was doing a TV show and. And she was nice enough to hire me to, to the lowest level of the low of like writers when I'd already sold two movies and five, six screenplays. Um, but I did that for about, you know, 10 weeks. And, and then, you know, um, Entourage happened. So, What did going through all of that, those struggles, teach you about money and the value of working hard? Well, I've always been, uh, you know, my parents instilled in me, you know, kind of hard work and prepare for a rainy day. I'm always panicked that I'm going broke. It doesn't matter how much money I have. And, and that's why I say even when I had $600, I thought I was going broke and whatever I have now. I always, I'm always convinced that I'll be running out of money soon. So um, I, try to, I try to live like every job is my last job. I always have. And, uh, you know, when I do a job, I, I work it as hard as I can and I put as much into it as I can. How did the idea for Entourage come about? So Steve Levinson, who's my friend from, from Tulane, um, he managed Mark Wahlberg. And I know Mark from Steve. And, and they, Mark used to follow his friends around with a camera. And Steve came to me one day and said, we want to do a scripted version of Mark and his friends, basically. Um, and I remember I said, that's the worst idea I've ever heard. And Steve, as he often did, said, you'll figure it out. Think about it and you'll figure it out. And I kind of... Um, 
you know, from that point, I kind of thought about how I could merge my friends and, and what I know about friendship and, and make it New York instead of Boston, because like our sports rivalries, I just, I just hate Boston. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's really where it came about. Explain why you didn't get it, the concept, at first. Well, I think the good news about why I didn't get it is that I think, you know, an entourage typically, as I view it, is a bunch of guys who live off another person. And I just didn't, I didn't think people would want to watch that. So it was very important to me, and we spent a lot of time coming up with giving these guys defined purposes and making them a family and making them friends since childhood. Um, you know, so I think I think that was that was the initial reason. And of course, it's always like you know Hollywood stories. You always go, who wants to watch Hollywood stories? So, you know, to me, it was really much more important about getting into the details of the friendships and and where they're from and all of that. So, tell about laying in bed and getting a call from I guess your manager Steve mm-hmm. Levinson Steve, yeah. at the time, uh, telling you that HBO yeah. had just read your pilot. Yeah, well, um, we were convinced it was great. And I had, you know, um, one of the heads of UCLA screenwriting who, who guided me through it. And she's like, this is, this is one of the best pilots, you know, whatever. So anyway, we were convinced that this was really good. I still am, by the way, but whatever. And uh, Steve called. You're still convinced that that original script oh, yeah. was really good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Not that it didn't get better, but I'm still convinced it wasn't as bad. By the way, it might not even be that they didn't like it. It's how you hear and how you interpret, because HBO was great enough to let us continue on after this. But... Steve called me up, and I was just waiting to get the call from HBO how much they liked it. I was thoroughly convinced, and I'm the most negative guy in the world, but there was something about this I really believed was going to work. And uh, he called me up, he's like, and Steve is very blunt and cold. There's no, you know, there's no bullshit with him. He said, they hate it. (laughs) And I said, what did they hate about it? He said, everything. (laughs) And I remember I took my German Shepherd, I walked to the park, which was... um, you know this this empty park. They were they were uh, redoing this park, which is a grass field. And I remember I took a bottle of, of probably Johnny Walker at the time, and uh, I just sat there with my German Shepherd. And I was like, my career is officially over now because this was after I wasn't getting any jobs. Then we sold this, which seemed like the greatest thing that ever happened. You you sold, sold it to HBO. Sold to HBO at a time when you know they were the only game in town for really quality stuff. Now obviously they still are, but now you have all the other players. Um, but it was, you know, the greatest moment ever. I think Steve would say that too. They hated that first script and I sat down and, uh, I, I have no idea what kept me going, but I, I went to Palm Springs, I think two days later and I wrote a completely different script that was, um, so bizarrely off from what that one was. And we kind of moved forward from there. Eventually, you know, the script that we shot was probably 50 Sixty percent that first script, but there were just tonal differences and some other things that threw them. So, how many different drafts were there? Then the I did honestly thirty drafts. Again, there's still a core of everything that is in that first draft, but it just kept changing and the characters started changing. I mean, there were probably twenty-five characters in the first draft, not the one I handed in to HBO, but the first draft we did, which I think we all realized because none of us did TV, it was like, how are we gonna? How are we going to have 25 characters in this thing? Like We had a giant entourage, security guards and chefs right. and all of this stuff. So it just kept getting slimmer. So you'd turn in a draft of the script and then HBO would send it back with notes, basically? Yeah, I mean, you'd get a meeting. I mean, everything was very slow and HBO didn't have to do anything. Like, a, a, you know, if you do network TV, you hand in a script. If they hate it, it's over. You're done. Say goodbye. Thanks a lot. Here's your check. 
uh, HBO, they'll let you keep going. You know, they'll tell you we like this, we don't like that. So, how many of the revision requests did you agree with, and how many did you sort of reluctantly? I mean, honestly, accept? at that point in my life, you know, you fear kicks in, and I don't think you agree with anything. And like I say, you don't necessarily hear what they're saying because some of it wasn't as big as it seemed. You okay. know, but when you hear, you know, hate, you go whatever. What their real problem was from the beginning was a tonal issue. You know, I, you know, I didn't start it off with Vince's on top of the world. I started off where he had a, a bad movie come out and there were stresses and struggles. Again, 60-70% of it is similar, but the tone kind of shifted from uplifting wish fulfillment to, ooh, this poor guy is, you know, suffering, which they were smart enough to realize. I don't know that anyone would have cared to watch a, a movie star suffering in his in his mansion and stuff. So um, there were things that we came together on, but it took a long time to actually understand what the issue The difference between fun and funny? The difference between fun and funny. That was a, Steve and I used to ask that all the time. And then, I, I mean, it sounds so obvious now, but we didn't realize it. You know, funny is a funny joke. Fun is being in a Ferrari with your four best friends and eight girls chasing you. You know what I mean? And, so, and what were they going for? HBO? I think they wanted fun, and okay. I think I wanted both. And okay. I think I wanted a lot of heart. And I think they just wanted fun, you know? And I think uh, ultimately the show became all of that. So, you know, they were right, uh, we were right, and, you know, I think it worked out for the best. What was involved with convincing Jeremy Piven to play Ari? Um, the first treatment I ever wrote was, said Jeremy Piven playing my old agent, Jeff Jacobs, before I had ever met Ari Emanuel. So, um, you know, he just, he had to read the script and we had a meeting and I just, you know, kind of had a bullshit him that I knew where this thing was going because I had no idea and the Ari role wasn't, you know, the star of uh, of the pilot. Um, so, you know, we had a couple of good talks and I think, uh, you know, Mark spoke to him and I think he, you know, he took a flyer, took well, a chance. What did Mark say to him? I don't know. You'd okay. have to ask Mark, we'll probably, you know, shut the up and do it, you know, but I, I don't know. I mean, Mark, I think Mark told him that, you know, um, we this was going to be a smart, intelligent show. This wasn't going to be some, you know, dumb thing, and we were really putting our, our, our heart and soul into it, so. In what ways was that character actually based off of the super agent, Ari Emanuel? Well, again, you know, I, I love Jeremy from all of the stuff he'd done before, Larry Sanders, etc., so I wanted... Jeremy Piven's energy. I didn't know Ari Emanuel. I'd never met him. Uh -huh. And when we pitched the show into HBO, it was me and Steve Levinson, my agent at the time, and Ari. And that was the first time I ever met the guy. And it was after that meeting that I said, this is the character, you know, the things that were coming out of his mouth in that meeting. Well, like what? I mean, I've said some of this before, but I mean, you know, I had worked on this thing for five, six months to get it ready. I had all my little papers and my sheets and I didn't even say a word. We just walked in and Ari said, it's, it's Mark and his friends. This guy's gonna write it. If it sucks, we'll fire him and someone else will rewrite it, you know? And, and being completely serious. A hundred percent serious, you know? And I loved it. I was like, whoa, you know, like, what is this? And uh, then when we got out, they bought it. Like I said, we were spinning around and, and things were great. And he called, uh, my agent called, said they wanna buy it. So I said to him, should I send them some writing samples over, you know? And uh, then Ari calls me, who I don't even know, and he's like, let me understand this. I just sold your show, and now you want to send samples over so what, they can unbuy it? 
And I just was like listening to this guy. I'm like, so I told Steve that day. I said, I, I said I want him to be my agent, and he was like, Nah, you're not, you're not ready, you know. And I said, We just got a show bought at HBO, which again I thought was meaningful. It was not. It was right. just meant a script commitment. So uh, then the show got picked up, and I said, Steve, I'm ready. I want Ari to represent me now. And he said, You're not, you're not ready. And then we got picked up for the season, and then we got nominated for Golden Globe, and it wasn't until like season three. I was like, Ari, Ari's ready. He wants to sign it, you know? And I said, all right, well, tell him I want him to buy me a car or some shit. So then we went to dinner and whatever. So he was my agent for a while. How much when you were doing the show was it all consuming? Completely. I mean, during the writing process, it was completely all consuming. You know, I would come home. It was, it was, it was nothing else, you know, for at least the first five years. I think maybe even six. The last couple of years were a little easier, but it was completely consuming. Yeah, how much... Did you have the ability to have a life outside of work? I don't know that I don't have a life because, uh, you know, it, but it doesn't matter. I mean, the things that I got to do during the course of, of, of this show are amazing. But even while I was doing them, I was sitting there thinking about, okay, I got to get this script done. What is this story? I'm, I'm out of stories. I have, you know, so things like that. I'm, I'm much better off when the seasons would end. That's why I say I'm convinced I would be very happy, like retired. The in-between seasons, I'd be great. I'd be traveling, I'd be vacationing, I'd feel great. And the first day I got in, everyone would always say, you need to recharge, you know? And the day I got back into the office, I'd be right back where I started with. This is gonna be a torturous hell, so. Really? That was the same on the movie. You know, the movie was no different. The script, you know, once the script was done and we got to go make it, then it's, you know, to me, it's the, the joy of the process. How long did it take you to figure out how to slow down a bit? I have not figured it out, except yeah. for, you know, I slow down, um, I slow down because I don't have a deadline. Again, if I, if I went out and, and tried to seek more jobs and more work and do more things, then I would be under more of that type of pressure that I try to avoid. How obsessed almost are you with character development? Um, I mean, I'm obsessed with, with everything. I obsess over every word, you know, and, uh, you know, it gets trickier and trickier the more you do. We did 96 episodes and now a movie. Stories get harder and harder to come by. And, um, you know, so, but I obsess over all of it. What does the process entail for you? Torture. <laughs> you know, really? Trying to get up, trying to get myself in there, you know. And, in where? Here, wherever, wherever I'm writing. It's, uh, it's always a struggle. Procrastinators, writing is not a great job for procrastinators. I was much better with deadlines. That's why having the show, I mean, I was, you have to. You have no choice. You got to keep moving, moving, moving. But, you know, everyone's like, why'd the, why'd the movie scripts take so long? And because nobody was demanding it, you know? So if someone would have, it would have taken a lot less time. How often do you write? Not often enough. The but I mean, ones, what's not often enough? I, I don't, I wouldn't say I, I have a, an amount of time, you know, like Stephen King, I think, writes, you know, every single day. I certainly don't. Um, every week? And I, uh, Not every week, no, not even every month, you know. I usually, when I have to, you know, I don't anymore. I don't write for fun, so I don't sit down and go, you know what, I'm really thinking about something. I'm dying to get off my chest. That doesn't happen. How long would it take you to write an average episode of the show? Anywhere from... Uh, a day and a half to seven weeks, you know? Some were really simple and some weren't, you know? What's one that would take longer? Mm, I don't know which one that takes longer, but the one I got nominated for an Emmy for, I think it took me like a day and a half, you know? And maybe that's why, so, you know, maybe maybe if you don't overthink it, it's, you know, better. But. How about the tightest crunch you've ever been in to get an episode done? Um, 
you know, HBO was, they gave us a good amount of time. So, so scripts, we were usually far, usually ahead, um, but it still took a good amount of time. But I never, never was really that crazy with it. You know, like we're, we're shooting tomorrow. I need this. So, I, I mean, at some point, so weren't you only an episode ahead? Probably. I try not to. I think I've blocked. Why? That. I, I just. I don't know the the pressure of that when I used to be in the office till four o'clock in the morning trying to figure this stuff out, or or New Year's, or you know, literally sitting in the office going, I have no story. I mean, I remember, I remember calling Kevin Connolly. I forget where he was partying somewhere, and uh, you know, I'm like, ah, I'm dead. I have no story. I have nothing. And I, he was like, I just ran into Harvey Weinstein. He said he's gonna kill you for the episode you did last year. I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, no, he wasn't joking. He said he's gonna. F- kill you he's gonna take a knife and he's gonna stab you and I was like really and uh, I came up with an episode that night I think that was New Year's I couldn't tell you what season what year and then we did another one with Harvey where he comes back and he threatens to stab E so it was literally verbatim dialogue that Kevin had told me Harvey had said to him in a, in a bar somewhere you know I understand you know sometimes there will be celebrities that will commit to do cameos mm-hmm. you'll write the script then for whatever reason, they changed their mind. Yeah. How frustrating a Beyond frustrating. Is. You know, one of the great tragedies is uh, Eli Manning, you know, bailing on me, you know. And, and when sports and uh, my life combine, you know, I'm a diehard Giant fan, as you can tell from my, uh, my signed David Deal helmet right here. Yeah, this is a good friend of mine and, and sent me this, which I love. Uh, two-time Super Bowl champion David Deal, by the way. But uh, right after the Super Bowl ended, um, I was sitting at my desk minding my own business, and uh, and uh, my phone rang, and I answered, and it was Eli Manning, and he said, "I I love the show, I'd love to be on it, and whatever." So, I took however much time it uh, takes to write a script, and then I sent it to him, and he didn't call me back, and I called him again, <laughs> he didn't call me back, I called him again, he didn't call me back, and you know, I'm like, we're days away from filming this thing, and it's not so easy. I'd um, one of the agents, and I, I would never talk about Peyton because I've never spoken to Peyton and I have no idea, but someone told me that Peyton wanted to do it as well, so I had written Eli and Peyton in it, so I was like, I don't know how to replace them. So uh, I was going crazy, and Mark said, you know, what if me and uh, Brady did it? I said, well, that would work, you know, <laughs> so uh, that's how we switched it, you know, and it's always been an upsetting thing for me, and uh, why I, I love the Giants so much, it's it's why, you know, if Russell Wilson was the quarterback of the Giants, I would be a happier person. Did you ever hear back about Never. what happened? Um, I heard from his agents that, you know, they had ended up it was after they won the Super Bowl, and then I guess they lost to the Vikings, and, and his agent called me and said something to the effect of, he wants to focus on football, I'm sure you understand. <laughs> and I kind of went crazy and said, no, I don't understand. It's, you know, He works hard, I work hard. I didn't call him, he called me. And I, we, I never even got a response. You know, it'd be one thing if he read the script and said, I hate it, this is awful, but I never got, the, I never got anything, so. And, and you've never seen him since? I have never seen him since, but I've got Tom Brady's jersey hanging right there, and Drew Brees is right there, and Russell's over there, and I do not have Eli's. And, uh, Which says a lot when you're a Giants fan. It's very, it's very hard for me. I just root for them to win, and I hope he doesn't have great games. It's just the way it is, you know? So I want to run through some of the notable athletes, who've, or notable sports stars who've appeared on the show, and just get you to recall the best moment from the shoot. Uh, the first one being Tom Brady. Tom was like a no entourage, simple, call me direct, I'll be wherever you need me. And he got out, it was like a 40 degree day. He had just, you know, I don't know, 
two months before I had knee surgery, four months, whatever it was. You know, we did knee surgery, gets out at the golf course. It's like 45 degrees out. He walks up, I swear to God, he walks up to where we are on a par three, whatever it was, 250, picks out a club, does not even take a practice swing, and puts it within a foot of the hole. And we're all sitting there going, okay, this is why he's Tom Brady, you know? And he was just awesome. He was easy, you know, easy to work with, happy to be there. And uh, I called him for the movie, too, and he showed up the same way, so. How about Phil Mickelson? Phil Mickelson was was a little funnier because uh, um, Kevin Dillon or Jerry or both had run into him and said he loves the show and he wants to be on it, and um, <laughs> and then he, he had you know that that meltdown at Wingfoot. So uh, we had a line which I think Brian Burns actually wrote that line. So I don't even have to take credit for it. But he said he's he's Ari said he's melting down like Mickelson at Wingfoot. You know, so a year later, like, you know, I always remembered Mickelson liked it. I wonder if we can get him. We call him up. They said he's in. So I'm like, you know, he probably doesn't even watch the show. Because some guys, they claim they like it, but it's an agent telling them. So Phil shows up on the set, and I walk up to him, and I was like, hey, I'm duh. He goes, yeah, I know. He's melting down like Mickelson at Wingfoot. So that, that, you know, you feel bad with something like that, but he was a great sport, and he was great. Ronda Rousey. Ronda is a badass, but so sweet and so innocent that you forget. You forget to the point that all of us were talking about, you know, how long we could last in the ring with her as if it was a real, a real discussion and all of us thinking that we might be until we really put Jerry in the ring with her and, and, and tried to, you know, for a moment imagine if this was real. I mean, she's one of the best in the world, but there's nothing arrogant about her. There's nothing um, off-putting, and, and again, she's just easy, was happy to be there, and very gracious. And that's obviously in the trailer for yeah. the, the film. What was involved with shooting that? Just getting Jerry to overcome his fears, you know, of, no, of kill. No, not really. It was, it was great. It was, there was no, it was nothing. It was just an easy, easy, fun day. That was actually a great day. The one sports star you would have most liked to have had do a cameo that you were never able to get. I mean, of course I wanted Michael, you know, obviously. And and I did want Tiger to um, somehow play into the situation and make fun of it and get in it, but that, that wasn't even, you know, on, on the table at all. But I would have liked to get Michael on the show. That would have been cool. Did you get close? No. I mean, I called people, but nobody ever called me back, so. Uh, how big of a sports fan, I, I, I mean, Huge, huge, huge sports fan. You know, that was my childhood, you know. And if I could have done anything, I would have been a point guard for the Knicks. That would have been my... Dream know, job. Dream job. I mean, a good point guard. I don't want to be like, a, you know, a backup. But I would have been, I would have loved that more than anything. My greatest childhood memories are all sports related. Um, it was, you know, the Islanders and the Giants and the Yankees. And, you know, it's uh, so big. All, all the New York teams. New York teams, yeah. Yeah, I was a Ram fan for a minute when I was young. The movie Something for Joey, I think, got me uh, got me liking the Rams for a while. But. Uh, best venue to watch a game? <sighs> I mean, Nassau Coliseum is such a disaster now, but, you know, all of my great memories are there. But the Garden, you know, I mean, the Garden, when, uh, when the Knicks looked good for a minute, I mean, just it was it's electric there. There's nothing like it, you know, and there's no I've been to the finals at the Staples Center and there's no comparison. None. You know, when the garden is going and when New York feels the Knicks are happening, it's there's nothing like it. Well, why? What do you think the difference is? New Yorkers, you know, and uh, in L.A. it's 
you know, it's, um, they care, but they don't, you know. Um, because it's more transient? I guess, and I don't know, you know, it's, maybe it's the building and the history of all of it. Um, there's just nothing like the garden, nothing. How cool was sitting courtside for the first time? Amazing, you know, like to, to hear every sound of it and, you know, uh, actually, you know, sitting with my son courtside and I didn't realize he was six or seven years old and he really wanted to say hello to Kobe and, uh, you know, and everyone's like, you know, I don't know if he's going to say hello. And my son got out there as Kobe was coming out of the tunnel <laughs> and, and Kobe, you know, high-fived him and rubbed his head and uh, turns out he was doing that Spike Lee documentary with, for, uh, they were playing the Spurs. So it was, it was incredible to hear it. It's such a difference from even even 10 feet away, when you hear these guys talking and you hear, you know, right in the huddle, like the seats that, that Ari Emanuel has that he was nice enough to give me, like my leg was touching Kobe, like I'm in the seat next to Kobe. So I hear every word that's going on and everything that Phil was saying at the time. And it was, it was very cool. Best game you've ever been to? Not even a question. 1980, you know, New York Islanders, Philadelphia Flyers, you know, Bobby Nystrom scores in overtime uh, to win their first of four Stanley Cups, there's nothing even close to that. Nothing. What do you remember from it? Everything, you know. My father won't like it, but everything from we had season tickets to, you know, somehow I was the youngest son and everybody wanted to go and I ended up in the last row of the Coliseum. Like our seats were like eight, ten rows behind the opposing team's bench, but I was in the last row of the Coliseum. I remember like it was yesterday and I cannot ever imagine a feeling like that again, ever. Uh, well, as a longtime Entourage fan, for sports and you being a big sports fan was kind of my excuse for yeah. doing this. So well, cool. I, I really appreciate uh, absolutely. you this is great. making the time. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to my interview with Doug Ellen. To see more of our time with him in L.A., including a conversation with Entourage's Jerry Ferrara, a.k.a. Turtle, visit YouTube.com slash Graham Bensinger. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger, and you can visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.